Hello, everyone, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. Um, today, we're lucky enough to have Victoria Riddell, who is an American poet and fiction writer who lives in New York. Her most recent book, Before Everything, uh, came out just a couple of years ago, and one of her novels, Loverboy, was turned into a movie directed by Kevin Bacon and starring Kyra Sedgwick, and we'll get into that a little bit in, in a little while. But first, I just wanted to thank you, Victoria, for, for being on our program. Michael, it's a pleasure. Fun to talk to you. Anytime. <laughs> well, thank you. That's really sweet. Um, and you know, I've, I've, we've, we've known each other for a long time, although it's been a long time since we've actually been face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had a chance to ask you, um, what inspired you to become a writer? Were there any major influences? Did, you, did someone, you know, did someone inspire you like in person or was it a writer or was it, how did that come to you? You know, I don't, I don't really know I, uh, what pushed me in that direction, but I know that from really an early age, I was writing poems and somehow even from an early age and, you know, horrible poems of sixth grade, seventh grade, I was writing them and I was revising them. I sort of figured Mm. out that like the first shot wasn't the best shot necessarily and that it took a little time. Um, And I was into that. Um, My, I, I, no one in my, no one in my family um, was a writer. It it wasn't really the world I grew up in. um, My, both my parents um, I was first generation um, here. And I, I think language is part of the inspiration. I mean, that sounds kind of... Um, no, no, that of, makes sense. That sounds kind of high-minded to say, but I grew up in a house where a lot of languages were spoken and a lot of languages were kind of spoken, although we, as the children in that house, were kind of, um, in, in some sense, you know, instructed not to learn the languages, that our job was to... Uh, become uh, to assimilate and so but there were the rhythms of all these other languages in my house and they language had the possibility of bearing secrets right because my mother and grandmother my grandmother lived with us they spoke pretty exclusively to each other in Russian with me in the room so I kind of understood but I couldn't speak my mother and father spoke to each other in French, and when we all started learning enough French, they switched over to German. You know, there was a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> and then my sisters, uh, you know, just because they needed to have their own secret language, you know, started speaking in in gibberish. And when I when I cracked the code of gibberish and started speaking, and then you know, chimed up at the table with them, they switched to another secret language. It was just you know, so so cracking the code of language and what was behind, what were this, what was being said interested me from an early age and, the, well, and I was a, a reader I was a reader you know I think that's probably the biggest influence I, I read I was always uh up early up earlier than anyone in my family with a book in my hand did you have any literary heroes as a kid I was um <laughs> I was kind of all over the place you know as a little kid I was a huge lover of um biographies. I was just talking about this with someone, you know, I was into reading about, um, you know, Jane Hull and the Hull House and Clara Barton and Florence, like girl, uh, female heroes, Mm -hmm. but also Lewis and Clark and Amerigo Vespucci, you know, kind of uh, people who, well, I guess they were, many of them were conquerors. Um, but I guess I saw them as, as people who ventured out adventurers. Um, and then I loved to tree grows in Brooklyn. That was a big influence on me as a, a book. Um, and then on and on. I mean, later in my life, by the time I got to university, I was also writing poems and there were, I was first beginning to see poets around me and understand the world of contemporary poets. And there were many of those contemporary poets. Um, and I've been lucky enough to have uh, teachers who I thought were great writers in my life. So did you ever have that moment where you had to tell your parents or a significant mm-hmm. other, you know what, I want to be a writer? And wh- how, was, how was that received? <laughs> well, it's worse because at that point I was saying to people I wanted to be a poet. 
Oh, yeah. Really, <laughs> but a poet is something, it mostly makes people's eyes just go a little bleary, like, oh, gosh, really? Um, my, when I was, I, I was studying visual art in college, as, and, um, and poetry was sort of just my side thing that I was doing. I wasn't really studying it. Um, and, you know, when I spoke about that with my parents, they, my father would, would say to me things like, well, maybe you could become a mystery writer. You know, he was just desperate to think of the way that I was going to earn a living doing it. Um, well, I mean, that's, I, I, that's really nice because, I mean, you know, the, the, if I were to tell, you know, when I told some of my older grown-up friends, friends of my parents, you know, that I, I wanted to be a writer, they would basically trot out, you know, well, no one makes a living at that. Right, right. So at least your, at least your dad had a no, writing he option creative. for you. He, he was trying to be creative about it. I mean, I think he pretty much understood um, that inside of the world of writing, poetry, at least certainly at that period of time, maybe it's shifting a little bit now, fell outside. One of its beautiful things is it fell outside of commerce. It, fell, it falls outside of, in a certain sense of capitalism. Um, and I think he got that. And I think he feared that, you know, he, he just knew I was going to always have to have another job, which I said to him, and that's going to be the way it goes. So you, you went in eyes wide open. What did you imagine yourself? I mean, because now, you know, you're, you're an accomplished writer. You've been teaching. You've obviously managed to put together, um, you know, a literary life um, that is self-sustaining. Um, but at the outset, <laughs> what, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> what, were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, exactly. I wasn't probably. I wasn't really. You know, um, I I got out of college I, I, when I was 21, and I I moved to Western Massachusetts, where I uh, moved into a household with five other people, and we split the rent on that house, and it was $65 a month rent. Um, Wow. And, yeah. yeah. 65 a person. I'm sorry. So we each were. Yeah, no, I mean, but that's amazing. To yeah. live in this wonderful farmhouse in Montague, Massachusetts, which was uh, close. It's, it's right in that five college area. And I came to town during the summer to find a job. And I looked in the want ads um, in the newspaper, which I don't, I don't think that exists for a person to do anymore. And I saw two jobs that I thought, oh, maybe I could try one of these. And one was for working with uh, troubled adolescents in a school. And the other was working in a women's halfway house for recovering alcoholics connected to the hospital in Greenfield, Massachusetts. So I, I called both of the, the numbers and said, I'm in town just for the weekend and I'd like to come bring you my resume and have a, an interview. I was just such a numbskull, right? I had no idea that that was not a way to apply for a job. And in both cases, they basically said, uh, that, that's not really how it works. And I said, okay, can I bring you my resume? But I'm only in town for a very short time because <laughs> I had another summer plan <laughs> cooked up for myself. I was working that summer at Bread and Puppet Theater up in Vermont. And so I needed to get back up there. So I didn't tell them that, but I, I got both job interviews and I actually got both jobs. Um, the idea of why anyone hired a 21-year-old fresh out of college um, to be a counselor um, in a women's halfway house for recovering alcoholics who had, you know, Zippo experience is it, it, sort of stunning to me now. At the time, it didn't even seem stunning. So I had a job right away and it worked. It was a part-time job, although it gave me health benefits and it was uh, 25 hours a week and I was able to then begin to carve out writing time. And I figured at that point, this is what my life will look like. I'll have these various gigs to support the thing I want to do. So, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I'm just wondering, process-wise, um, is there something that you found works for you more than others? I mean, you said that you used to wake up earlier than everyone in your household to read. Is that kind of what you did with writing? Because I mean, yes. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm a, I would say that, you know, probably every writer figures out, or hopefully every writer figures out what's um, 
what's their best, best rhythm. And then given what our uh, life's necessities, they rearrange them. So um, I've, you know, given my temperament, I'm, I think I kind of, on my own would keep kind of farmer's hours. So, you know, I would be up on my own time, you know, at five in the morning and go to sleep at probably 8.30 or nine. And since I was, you know, young, I was never the life of the party in that way. Um, but what I found, because once I, by, I had kids relatively early. And so now I had, had to figure out how to have a job, have kids and how to have a writing life. And so I just, pretty strictly created a schedule for myself. And with each change of period of time, I would rearrange the schedule. But um, there were periods of time where I would wake up at five in the morning and uh, write each morning between five and seven, because that was a period of time I knew the kids would sleep until I had to get them up for school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that shifted because somebody had to get up, you know, I just would shift my time around. I, it stopped being, sometimes it stopped being what was my natural rhythm, but what could work in a, in a week. And, you know, I, I create really, um, the only way I know how to do it is to sort of set up schedules because to be blunt, many of the times if I have to choose between sitting down to write, getting a chance to write for a period of time or going to the gym and working out, I'll choose the gym at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have to schedule it. So I get in everything. You know, it's funny when I was in college, I, um, I rented a room uh, from a guy named Norman Loftus uh, who became a a, a really good friend. And he was uh, 25 years older than me, Um, Mm -hmm. but we had the same birthday and that kind of created like a, an odd bond between us. And he was a writer and filmmaker and, um, and, and one day, um, you know, he knocked on my door and he said, hey, so, you know, um, you, you told me you want to be a writer, and, but, like, I see you going out all the time, chasing girls and, you know, I, coming home late. When, when, when do you write? And I said, oh, you know, when I'm inspired. <laughs> um, and he said, well, you know, that, that's not going to work if you really want to be a writer. And the thing is, he, he had been friends with Auden late in Auden's life. Uh, They'd met late in Auden's life, but he'd been, you know, friendly with them. And he said, let me tell you how Auden did it. And very much like you, Auden got up at five in the morning and and it was a very precise schedule. He would get up at five, he would write for a half hour. Then he would go and he would make himself a cup of tea. He Uh would drink the tea and at six o'clock he would sit back down and he would write for another hour and then he would stop and he would have breakfast. And then he would change out of his bathrobe and into his clothing. And by then it was 7.30 and he would work for another two hours. And at 9.30, he was done for the day. That was it. Beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) And um, that's a great story. And a a like kind of schedule that I learned later. Um, I read it in a, a piece on Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, and I, I imagine this is later in Marquez's life also, what, you know, when he was no longer you know, a journalist. But his schedule was he would get up and between five and seven, he would read. Between seven and 10, he would write. Between 10 and one, he would take care of his, let's call it literary correspondences or literary business. And then at one, come upstairs, join the family for lunch, and then have the after. He was done. And then the afternoon was for friends, or you know, he obviously later became got involved in diplomacy and things like that. But again, this very regimented um, thing. And when I read that, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I, I, it's not just some kooky invention of mine to keep myself in my seat, you know. Yeah. But because the whole thing, you're right. I mean, or, 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 your, or, your, or your birthday twin was right. Hmm. Inspiration is great, but you have to kind of, um, in the midst of the daily life, create the opportunity to give, to give the imagination a little re- breathing room to happen, to take place. And just, you know, it doesn't mean that every time, certainly for me, it doesn't mean that every time I 
sit in the chair and I, and I show up, um, something good happens. Uh, and a lot of times it feels like not much of anything happens um, or anything that will endure beyond that day happens. But if I keep showing up, it, it happens. You know, yeah, right? you, you know that, right? Michael? I mean, I, I wonder, do you think that inspiration is a product of a habit of mind? It's a great question. Yes. Yeah, I think making room for the imagination. Yeah. And, and whether, you know, for different people, that's something different, you know, um, uh, you, you, whether it's, uh, I knew uh, when I was in college, I was lucky enough to meet a poet whose work I really love, a guy named William Bronk, I think a completely underrated American poet, I think one of our great American poets. And Bronk was an older guy by then. And Bronk, um, his habit was that he would, he lived um, in Hudson Falls, New York, and the eerie to towpaths run through that whole area. What was, you know, the towpaths that connected up with the Erie Canal. So once very busy now, not at all. And he would wake up early in the morning and walk the towpaths um, mm. for some period of time. And during those walks, he would begin composition uh, you know, uh, of a poem in his mind um, or work further on the lines of a, of a poem he'd been working on and then come home and work. And then he went off to his job because he inherited, took over from uh, after his father died, the family lumber and coal business in Hudson Falls, New York. He wow. lived his whole life. Well, not maybe, I, I, he went off to get a PhD at Harvard, and then he left. Maybe he taught very briefly at Union College, but then he took over this lumber and coal business. And uh, Bronk was a, a, a pretty prolific writer, um, and that it was a habit of mind, exactly as you say, a habit of, of invitation um, of, to the imagination, to the inspiration. Um, and for him, it happened walking, which I mean, is something I can relate to also, being outdoors. Yeah, I always... I use as my kind of North Star, um, not not necessarily in terms of the specifics, but just, um, I guess, uh, as an inspiration to keep going, um, the example of Wallace Stevens, because, you know, he was an insurance company mm -hmm, executive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know it from reading his poetry. It's unbelievably yeah. rich and beautiful, um, yeah. not to disparage insurance executives, but, you know. We all have our prejudices. But, well, one doesn't think it's particularly about the life of the mind in the way that Stevens's poems were so much about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. By the way, if you, you... like if you like Stevens, go read some William Bronk at some point. I think you'll see their their affinities. Oh, I've I've already written the name down because a recommend your recommendation is um, you know something I pay attention to. Uh, I wanted to say because we just mentioned Wallace Stevens. Um, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but what the heck? Um, during the lockdown, you mm -hmm. would do readings that you um, broadcast live on, on Facebook Live, um, including Wallace Stevens. That's what r reminds me of it. Um, and it was um, as beautiful an experience as I think I, I had during the whole time. Um, it, well, no, but I mean, it was incredibly generous of you to do. And I'm just wondering what inspired you to do that? Uh, it, 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 it came about oddly and organically. Um, so uh, when lockdown happened, uh, the Academy of American Poetry uh, just sort of sent out a thing to poets saying, um, could you post a poem uh, that has, I don't know, helped you through the day. And so it was right at the beginning of lockdown. I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, I'm going to, if I'm going to get locked down, I want new things. So I found a poem that I didn't know by Ada Limon and I posted it on Facebook. And then, a, you know, a bunch of my friends, not, I have many friends on who are most many friends of mine through my life who aren't writers. And um, certainly those who go bleary-eyed and scared of poetry said it would really have helped me if you read this poem because I don't really even feel like I know how to read a poem. And I thought, 
that, you know, that's a, I understand it, but it's a foreign notion for me. So I thought, okay, I, I, I've got nothing to do right now. So I thought, okay, for a week, I'm going to just read a poem by a poet and, um, and, 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 and post it on Facebook and Instagram. And so I, I did it for like two days. Um, and I thought, well, this is probably already um, a week seems like a lot. <laughs> and then uh, people started saying to me, this is really helping me these poems. And so I went for the, with the idea of a week. And then as I was coming to the end of the week, I started getting some emails and uh, people posting, please don't stop. These are really, this is really helping me during this time. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not a first responder. I, I'm not out in the hospitals. I'm not delivering food. Let me at least deliver poems. Um, and so my, so what I did was read a poem a day um, by a poet who, who was no longer with us, you know, but who's, who I felt their work endures or, and, and I did it for long. I did it for uh, something like, I don't know what I've done it for, like a hundred and something. Oh, I can look it up on, I did it for like 149 days in a row. Um, and then wow. I sort of went to once a week and now, and then it was kind of intermittent. Um, someone just wrote me and said, I think you need to start this again with the Delta variant. Um, and uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, a, you know, as anytime one does something of service in any way, it was, if it was a gift to anyone else, it was like a bigger gift to me because during the period of time, I, I revisited poems I loved by poets. I discovered so many poets um, because I began to think, oh, well, why am I getting stuck with just these poets? I know they're, the whole point of this is these are poets who are no longer with us and uh, let me help work indoor, even poets I haven't known. So, you know, it was poets from all over the world. And I also was able to, as events in our country and around the world were happening, it became an opportunity to highlight poets um, who spoke to those concerns or or whose work wasn't well known and should be better known. Um, so it was great. Well, I mean, it was, I, I you know, I, I'm one of those that found an, an enormous amount of solace, not just because of the content of the poetry, but just because of the connection that it, you know, gave us, you know, mm -hmm. quite frankly. Um, uh, so. But a, a part, let me just say one more thing. If you had ever said to me the idea that I was going to every day put my tele, my, you know, cell phone up and, and, and make a little video of myself and post it, I would have said, you are nuts. You are <laughs> nuts. I would never do that. I would never do that. That's too embarrassing. And yet it stopped being about, it didn't feel like it was about me. So it, then it stopped being, it, it didn't have the chance to feel embarrassing. And, and I'm sure that in addition to just helping you discover or rediscover um, poets that you love, um, that it also helped you just by virtue of, of, of doing it, it, was, it must have been enormously fulfilling um, to do just sort of emotionally, spiritually. It was, it was. So, so um, one of the things that, that we talk about on this podcast, as you could tell already from some of the questions I've asked you, is sort of the economic life of the writer. Uh -huh. And um, and so um, you're, you, you're, you are one of the, you know, not all of them, you're one of the few authors of literary fiction to get a movie deal. Um, and of course, everyone, you know, dreams about that. Yes, it'll have a book published. It'll, you know, I'll get that advance and then the movie, blah, 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 right? So mm -hmm. was it what you hoped for? Um, did it change your life? You know, um, did it, was it a surprise? I mean, what was it like? Um, so when, uh, when I wrote my first novel, which came after a book of poems and a book of stories, um, I, I, you know, you know this from trying to write 
something longer. I didn't know what I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. And the last thing, the last thing I thought about this book was that anyone would make it into a film. I, I wasn't confident anyone would publish this book. Um, so that was amazing, you know, that it got published. <laughs> it really was remarkable to me and made me, you know, that was, that felt more life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then it was, it fell into the hands of Kira Sedgwick. And uh, she apparently said to Kevin Bacon, who is her husband, you know, this is a really interesting, would be a really interesting role to play um, this mother. And he said, yeah, and that'd be fun to direct. So they, they um, reached out to me um, and uh, said, we'd like to option this. And I was like, wow, really? That's crazy. Sure. Um, and I knew other people who had had books optioned and I, I knew enough to, about that to know that if, you know, at best, many people just made some extra money having a book option and nothing would ever come of it. Right. Um, and that's what I thought was going to happen. And so they optioned it and then they optioned it again another year. And then um, by the end of that year, uh, they said, it's going to happen. We, we think we, we're able to put this thing together right now. And I went, that's crazy. <laughs> and great you know when you when you write a book and, and and it has the possibility of becoming a movie um uh you have to let go pretty quickly because it's not going to be the book you wrote and right. um and it's going to be somebody else's art form you know using your art form it's going to become someone else's maybe even a couple other people's art forms uh so you know they were kind and inclusive enough to uh i read this i met with them uh and the woman they had for a screenwriter to talk a little bit about the book and um well what about that character and what about that character and if we have to lose a character and i could i sort of said you can't lose that one you could lose that one you know they and they listened to that um and i read the script a couple times um i don't know that any of my notes were made use of uh and then I, and then the fun part was they let me come to the set a couple of times, which was kind of crazy to watch something that has happened alone in a room, you know, meaning I wrote it alone in a room, Right. Uh, watching, watching, like the first time I saw the little boy, he seemed really like, like, like the boy I was imagining come to life. Um, just visually. And mm. so that was kind of astonishing. I, I well, i I kind of welled up with tears. Um, uh, you know, they made there there are choices inside of the film that are that that skew the film very differently than the novel. I think I think they made a film with real integrity, um, and I think it stayed close to the intentions of the book. I really do, um, and and I think it had great acting in it, um, and a lot of really cool actors were in it. But in, inside the novel, there's um, kind of it's framed inside of two frames of time which is a little bit confusing to say but um what I really had the understanding of when I saw the film was I I I spent a long time in that book trying to make things um, for want of a better word quote-unquote seem pretty normal in a Mm -hmm. in a mother-child relationship before um before the reader begins to have a sense that things might go awry um, in the world. And um, because, of, because of where the film starts, we have a very different sense of the mother from the get-go than mm-hmm. I think you have when the novel begins. So, so that's, you, that's different. You know, it's, right. a, it, it's just a different, it's a different film than the book is. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, relationship to the book. Then. I was going to say, you know, from when you first started talking about this, I realized that you didn't have that Nabokovian rejection of, you know, the way he hated Lolita, um, mm-hmm. the movie, right? I mean, in recognizing that it is another, like you said, it's it, it's it, it's another work of art by someone who leaned on your work of art, um, right? But did you? 
Um, did you uh, did, did this change your life, the relationship with your editors or your agents? No. Did it, no? Nope. 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 Um, did I have people clamoring after me? No. <laughs> it didn't change my life that way. Um, um, you know, a lot of people did the six to, oh, you know, became popular. It, it, it's popular with, um, it, it's kind of like, it, 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 I think for writer, for, for young writers, because it's something people aspire to, because it seems to have like either cachet or money connected to it. It's people aspire to it. Um, so it, it has some resonance and it's like a cool thing. And certainly for, you know, people who, you know, constantly say to writers, have I heard of you, right? Well, if they ever read that, you know, it was made in, a book of mine was made into a film, it's like my, my worth goes up. It, it doesn't right. feel that way to me. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, I'm very happy it happened. It was a really beautiful experience. I had a good time, even with the things that felt like, oh, that's not my, you know, I, I could say, to, you know, very blithely, oh, this is a different work of art. But when I saw it, it was like, oh, this really is a different work of art. Mm -hmm. But now you have sort of, this is not the first time that you've, uh, I don't know what the parallel is to um, uh, breaking the fourth wall um, or whatever it is, but <laughs> because um, before your, so you had a cinematic book trailer produced for your short story collection which was called Yeah, that, that came about because um, a guy who studied with me, a student of mine, went into that business and reached out to me and said, can we, can I do a cinematic book trailer for your book? I didn't even know what a cinematic book trailer. I mean, I think, Michael, the a key, a key confession of mine is I, um, I have my head in the sand a lot. Of, uh, you know, so I've never really maybe there was a great way to, to have pushed having had a film made for my career. I, I, I'm kind of um, head in the sand a lot of times about those things. So anyway, I hadn't even heard about a, a, a cinematic book trailer uh, at that point. And I was like, sure, that sounds like a cool idea. What would it involve? And, and then they, he just went and did it. You know, I think, um, so it wasn't something I had a role in. He just said, can I use one of your, can I use the story and you can use it for your, for your, when your book comes out. And I went, I think he was building his business at the time. Right. So that was, you know, he asked me if he could do it. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> so if you had to pay for that, would you do it again? Was it, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is. I don't think, I don't, uh, honestly, I mean, I should, for, for his sake, Yes. I would say go <laughs> go to that company and um, I don't know. Do you think that makes a difference? I'm asking you. I mean, it's funny. Because, <laughs> I'm asking you, know, you, Michael. I, you know, um, I remember. I mean, when we first started in our writing careers, yeah. um, books were very bland looking, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you remember um, Bright Lights, Big City. Um, yep. Jay McInerney's breakthrough book. And one of the things about it was it, it had an amazing book jacket. Um, yeah. And I remember reading that Michael Peachy, who at the time was the editor who bought, the, who bought that book, um, um, had said something that resonated with me, which is we're competing with, you know, LP jackets. We're, we're uh, you know... Cool. And, 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 and we have to make books that are appealing as visual objects uh -huh. and you know I knew already from having spoken to other writers and our teachers at, uh, at school that um, no one knew how to market a book to save their lives I mean mm -hmm. in publishing right no one and I, I don't know whether anyone still knows other than you know I mean the, uh, you know touting the humongous advance that you've given somebody is you know still considered like a way to market the book, which is ridiculous. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it, it means hey, we really believe in this book. Okay, great. Um, um, you know, you see advertisements in the subway, and you think to yourself, does that does that help sell books? 
Did right. Sidney Sheldon need that when he was, you know, um, king of the literary um, economy? So I just, you know, I wonder whether, and, you know, a lot of people self-publish. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, and it's tempting today in the same way I was talking to my uh, my daughter's boyfriend who um, publishes music um, himself. And mm-hmm. he says, you know, there's a lot of people who go platinum and all they right. do is they, you know, I mean, they, 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 they publish something on Spotify and you get four cents a play. And, you know, I mean, if you go platinum, that, that really adds up. Yep. Um, and of course the, the, the parallel isn't the same because it's, it's not four cents and, you know, it's a whole other commitment for the, for the, for the, reader slash acquirer of the, of the work of art. But um, I think that a lot of people, um, and I mean, I think that the people who are most successful self-publishing are people who write business how-to books or things that are very niche nonfiction. Um, mm-hmm. I have I a friend who writes mysteries and um, publishes, self-publishes and, and, and they're sold on Amazon. And I think they do pretty well. I think they do pretty well. Uh, well enough that she, I don't think she's trying to have another publisher. I think it works wow. quite that, well. So that's, you know, that's, that's that mystery genre. And and then I think she's even written one that's a, a, a little bit of a thriller um, in there as well, or romance. I, I think she's sort of working in all those genre things, mm-hmm. self-publishing. But, you know, the music thing, who knows if there's an equivalent, right? I... I um, um, I know, I know, I guess instead of using the past tense, I know the mom of um, the rapper Mac Miller. And mm-hmm. um, the first time uh, we went with her to one of Mac's concerts, you know, he had no album, he had no nothing. And there I was in a, a, a concert hall in New York with a packed concert hall. And this was all from, I think, having YouTube, um, videos of his songs every kid in the audience knew every single word of his raps i was stunned i was like how does this happen it was a brave new world to me and and then of course mac went on to have all sorts of albums and music but that's how he started mm-hmm. you know maybe, so then, i don't know if there's an equivalent in writing i don't know if there is but so coming I mean, I back think, right wasn't that the 50 shades of gray story didn't she start out self-publishing i don't, I don't, I don't know, know. But know. it's different than literary fiction, I think. Yeah, no, I mean... I, there's great small presses. I mean, there's a whole range uh, in terms of literary fiction for, for writers, I think. And, and, you know, there are heroic people who have been um, producing books of great literary merit in small presses uh, for generations. And I, 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 they are, uh, to me, they're heroes. Mm-hmm. To me, they're heroes. But so coming back to the question I just asked you about the cinematic book trailer, do you think that that's something that worked commercially or did it have zero impact? I think it had zero impact on my book. But I, <laughs> I, I, have, uh, I, I wish it had had fabulous impact. Um, maybe, it had, maybe it didn't have zero. Maybe it had some percentage. Maybe it had some percentage. I don't really know. I don't know. And I don't know if there's a way to measure it. Um, I mean, I've never looked at how, I guess you would have to, I would have to look on YouTube to see how much, many times it's been read. Let me see. I'm gonna, now you have me <laughs> while we're on the phone. So while, you, while you're looking at that, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you another question. <laughs> and um, I, you know, you've been at this a while and um, your books have blurbs from the likes of Michael Cunningham and Annie DeWitt. Um, and... You know, I think that a lot of aspiring writers look at that and they go, how do you get those people to write blurbs for a book for you? Um, and, you know, I'm sure that all of these um, blurbs have come about from relationships that you've cultivated over, you know, the years, um, whether they are people who you taught with or, you know, who you um, took classes with or um, that you taught um, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering, other than the obvious, you know, <laughs> make as many friends as you can, what kind of, what, 
what advice would you give aspiring writers about that? Um, well, you know, writing is a writing is a kind of lonely business, right? We sit in a room and we do this thing alone, and um, you know, maybe we, maybe we, as in process, share our work with a few people. Maybe we share it with no one. Um, so you know, having friends <laughs> is a nice thing, right? Having, and whether that's friends who, you know, uh, are outside of my literary life have mattered to me once I leave the confines of my room. Um, but having friends who, uh, who have the same kind of concerns and love and passion for books and for crafting a sentence and, you know, not like we sit around talking about the craft of sentences, but I also have a sense that they are engaged in a similar um, avocation, vocation, whatever we want to call it, a similar path. And so uh, I've, I've always loved to have a community of writers and um, I've found that writers love to yak with each other and have friendships. And um, so, uh, you know, whether that Annie was a student of mine, Annie DeWitt was a student of mine. Um, and that, you know, was wonderful to have her as a student. I've been lucky enough to have a, many students who have gone on to have substantial lives as writers. I feel really proud of them. Um, and uh, I also think boldly, you know, asking people, it's not, you know, the asking for blurbs is, whether you know someone or you don't know someone, one of the worst things, I think. I, I, I think it's like, I, I actually think blurbs should sort of be outlawed. Um, <laughs> I do. I mean, I guess that's not a thing that can be outlawed, but um, really, wh why, does, why does what someone else say about my book make, you know, I guess it's the marketing thing, right? Um, make you want to buy it. But I, I, I know why, but having to ask for a blurb is horrible. You know, I, I um, the first book I had of stories, you know, I, I had to go send out and ask for blurbs. And I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know so many fiction writers. I, I, um, I knew from literary stuff, but also from political activism. I, I reached out to Grace Paley um, and I reached out to several other people um, and Grace gave me a blurb. Grace was the only one who gave me a blurb on my first book. But, you know, that felt pretty good to have one blurb on my book. Grace Paley. That's also, you know? I mean, amazing. That's it like 10 great. blurbs. <laughs> That's know. Grace Paley. That's a lifetime of blurbs. That's enough, right? For yeah. me, that was enough. I, I, I think that blurb could have been on every book I've ever um, written. I would have been happy to just have Grace's blurb on that book uh, for every book I've ever written. Uh, so yeah. And, and, um, but, you know, I knew Grace <clears throat> first because we both were politically active. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I was young and she was a, a writer, a poet and a fiction writer. And, um, I looked up to her and she was a person who, uh, you know, beautifully welcomed people into her heart, her home, her life, um, mm. and age seemed to have little, you know, didn't really matter um, if she found camaraderie in you and she, she went for it. Um, so, you know, that I had the great good fortune of knowing her in my life. Um, I mean, she was a reaching, hero to me. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it is amazing. And she was a hero to me in lots of ways. You know, uh, I would look up at her, I look to her when I was younger and think, um, okay, uh, Grace, is a writer and she has children. I knew I wanted to have children. And so I was like, I can do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I, even when I, was, when I was younger, I remember I knew Grace taught at Sarah Lawrence College. And I remember thinking, how am I gonna ever do this? Do I think I'll ever teach at a college? Um, and I remember thinking it'd be amazing to teach at Sarah Lawrence College. And, you know, here I was years later teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. So I just felt like, oh, and, and Grace was a poet and a fiction writer. So um, I just thought if she could do it, 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 it gave me a vision. She, she mm -hmm. was a mentor in that sense to me, of giving me a vision of how to live a life. 
So you finally answered my first question. 45 minutes later. Oh, about mentors? <laughs> no, oh, about inspirations. But oh, I'm joking. Goodness. I'm joking. I hadn't Grace asked it that Kelly, way. Adrian Rich. You know, I could make a long, long list of, 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 of writers who have been tremendous inspirations and, you know, for whom I thought, I, I, you know, how to model a life. You know, as a teacher, Michael, that's a very frequent question and particularly women come into the office, graduate students come in and at some point say, can you tell me how you figure out how to do this life? How do you mm-hmm. do it? How do you have a job and have a kid and have writing time? And, um, and you know, and, and, and some of it will be answered. I mean, it'll be answered differently. I have friends who early on when their kids were little stopped writing for a while and then came back to it. I have friends who, you know, carved it out right away. Um, I, I lied the first time after I had kids. I went out with some friends six months after my first kid was born. I went out with a group of, it was like my first night out, you know, babies, uh, whatever. I was able to go out six months and, uh, you know, the baby was going to be fed a bottle before bed. And I had freedom for the first moment, it felt like. And I sat at a table with a group of uh, writers and and there were visual artists and at some point I was the only person in that group at that point who was a parent at some point someone said so have you gotten any work done any of your own work done and all the faces turned and looked at me and I knew they were thinking you know she'll never fucking get any writing done and I, I hadn't and I just said yes I've been writing I just lied because <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna it hasn't happened yet in these first six months but I'm gonna well, I think yeah. that that is the um, the license that um, writers have is to make truth out of fi- fiction. <laughs> so, you know, as long as you ended up making that true, was to lie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, <laughs> was it really? It hadn't happened in the first six months, but then it happened. <laughs> there you go. Um, so that kind of if you hadn't been a writer, you know, if, if either that just, you know, at some point you decided, well, that's not realistic, or I don't know, for whatever reason you hadn't become a writer, what would have been like your dream vocation or career? Um, hmm. <laughs> Here's another one. I, I mean, as I said, I was school trying to be a a visual artist Mm -hmm. um so okay let's say you couldn't be an artist at all (laughs) arts was out of the question but 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 first female yankee center fielder that's that's that would be okay you could you could make that up um i i flirted for one little moment with thinking about becoming a doctor now mm-hmm. that the, the idea of that is such a stretch for me um, because you know I, I took very little science in school. It would have been a real stretch. Um, uh, you know, I would have loved to have been uh, what I would have what I had a fantasy of was being like a um, uh, an anthropologist and an archaeologist at one point. I would have loved to have been an archaeologist. Mm. Um, to makes... have, have been on digs and looked at other civilizations to understand the history and what we can glean from other cultures um, that are prior to us. I yeah, love that. That sounds actually very interesting. One um, of my fantasy jobs, but this is back to being an artist. If I, if I didn't have a life as a teacher, which I feel really lucky to have had a life as um, I often think this is a highly romanticized version of this job, but I've often thought that a great job for me as a writer, again, I'm, I'm, I've not given up the writer part on this piece of it, would have been to have been um, a, a postal delivery person. So that in a small town, the idea that I would, you know, walk around all day. So mm-hmm. I'd be outdoors, which I like to do. And I'd walk, which I like. Um, and I'd, live in sort of silence because you know i'm just walking with my own mind 
So uh, thus, you know, have kind of room for the mind and the imagination. And But even better would be inside of my mail sack would be the town's letters. So, you know, I would, I would kind of also know everybody's business. So <laughs> <laughs> I've often thought that was the job for me. So um, last question I want to ask you as a way of um, wrapping up is I want to ask you about your relationship to books. And I mean your physical relationship to books. Uh-huh. Do you dog ear pages or do you use a bookmark? Uh, I wish I had a more organized relationship to my books. So I dog ear pages. I write in the margins. Um, in the uh, in the best way I've ever had a, a physical relationship to books, and it's one I really encourage for my students is to keep um, uh, inside of my writing notebook to keep that next to me while I'm reading so that literally as I read things that are remarkable I can stop and write it write paragraphs down write sentences down Mm -hmm. um, as I'm reading and so that so because you know um, that that action of actually writing it out writing out somebody else's paragraph is such a it just changes even, you know, if it wowed me when I read it, it, um, I learned so much more as I physically write it out. So to have a, a physical relationship with the text I read is the ideal way. And I, I, in my best self, I do that, but I don't always do it. And I regret that I, that I don't always do it. I, I, I know what you mean because I think it changes your relationship to the work when you when you copy it down. Yeah, um, it changes sometimes your understanding of it, and it kind of permeates you in a way. Well, you get to that like that word that you that you kind of maybe skipped over, and you say, "Oh, that's the pivotal word," mm-hmm. and it's not the obvious word. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it, right? You know, oh, they it, they used it there instead of naming it, and they and then they and then they named it later. Um, and you know, that as a, as a reader writer, that's the best thing to do. God, Victoria, I, I, I could go on for another hour with you. Um, but, um, it's fun talking with you, Michael. It, it's it's been great. Um, so maybe we'll do this again. My um, pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. And again, it was just, it was a blast. Great. I hope I said something useful <laughs> to someone. I think you did. (laughs) Okay, great. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com. 